right. Well, let's get into our series. We're going to start a new series, Know Thy Enemy, The Strategy of Satan. And, you know, I think about a series like this, and I say to myself, who in the world wants to talk about Satan for five weeks? I mean, who wants to look at pure evil and analyze it? That doesn't sound like an enjoyable time at all to me. But then I'm reminded of these words from Sun Tzu, who I got this title from, and he wrote this classic military text, The Art of War. He said that if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, the Puritan writer Thomas Brooks said this. He said, Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four primary things that should be first and most studied and searched. Wow. Really? Christ, Scriptures, your hearts, and Satan's devices? Now, here's the thing. How much time or thought do we actually give to Satan's devices? I get the first three. I get Christ's scriptures in my own heart. But why the fourth? Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are involved in a cosmic battle that began all the way before even human creation. This battle has been raging uh, across time, it's happening in the spiritual realm. It impacts the physical realm that we live in. Paul said it in Ephesians 6.12. He told us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's this spiritual battle it's raging all around you, and now i got to ask, do you sense it? Do you sense it? Or do you kind of hope that the battlefront's elsewhere, that it largely leaves you alone, that you're not going to be impacted? As long as you take up the stance of live and let live, it's not going to affect you at all. And you really got to ask yourself the question, is that even an option? Now, we're going to start off in this series by examining our own worldview. I think it's very important to start there. Sun Tzu also said that the greatest generals win bloodless victories. And I want to suggest that as we look at our own worldview, as we examine it, that Satan has won many bloodless victories in our culture. We'll begin with this idea. For a moment, think about Satan and conjure an image of your mind of what he looks like. I know that's not the most tasteful thought in the world, but try it. Think about what Satan looks like. Have you ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Screwtape Letters? If you haven't, just to summarize it, it's a story about two demons in conversation, really one demon giving advice or coaching advice to another demon. It's a high official in the demon realm talking to a low-level demon. And 
The name of the high official, Screwtape, the low-level guy, is Wormwood. And listen to what Screwtape says to Wormwood. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. And by the patient, of course, he means you and me. He continues, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. What did you think about? And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, therefore he cannot believe in you. Here's another bloodless victory. People, by and large, in our culture will readily uh, accept the fact that there is good grounds to believe in the existence of God. They won't laugh at that, necessarily. You might anecdotally know some people that would laugh at that, but there are plenty of people in our culture that would accept that. They wouldn't laugh at it. Even atheists, they would sit down with you and have an intellectual conversation and say, there's good reasons why I could see that you would believe in God. But here's the thing. Most people scoff or laugh at the idea of demons, the devil, and angels in our culture. And I want to suggest, again, that that is a bloodless victory. You see, Satan is more than happy to operate within a society that does not believe in his existence. I want to call this satanic agnosticism. So whether or not people believe in him or have a diminished view of him, both of those things impact or affect spiritual warfare in our lives. By and large, with Christians, we fall into this category with the belief that Satan may exist, but that his influence in our lives is largely irrelevant. When I used to think of spiritual warfare, when I first started walking with Christ, I would wonder where is it most dramatic, where, where is it most impactful, and I would often think of the missions front as being the most dangerous place when it comes to spiritual warfare. I took a trip to the country of India while I was in seminary. While on that trip, we encountered a demon-possessed woman. We prayed over her, and by the grace of God, she came to trust Jesus Christ as her Savior. She found victory in that moment. Now, I was completely rocked by this encounter. I talked to some of the local pastors who lived in the area, and I said, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this. Do you guys deal with this all the time? And they said, yes, this is a very common experience in our world. Uh, one of the pastors, Viju, told me about a time when he was starting ministry in a local village and and by God's grace, the gospel's going forward. People are trusting Christ. People are getting baptized. One night while he's in this ministry setting, he's in a house, he's sleeping, and he hears this horrible, horrendous screeching sound outside. It's the screeching of metal. He walks out his door. He goes to investigate the situation. He looks at his motorcycle, and the gas tank on the motorcycle has been destroyed Upon examination, it looks like human claws have crumpled the gas tank. And the message that he received was, get out of this place now. 
Now, Vijou is a pretty brave guy in the Lord. He stuck around and continued to share Christ in that place. And I think about his story, and I think about my context, I'm often tempted to believe that it's more dangerous in that context. However, as I look at the Scriptures, I think that we might be in more danger. Why? Well, because people in Viju's context, they think about spiritual warfare often. They pray for protection. They put on the spiritual armor of God and in our context, Satan is daily influencing our situation, our life, our mindset, and we often are just going with the flow. He has precious access to minds and hearts and homes and even local churches. Who do you think is behind many of the various struggles that you face? Who? For example, the Bible tells us that you have so many blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace and joy. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have power and access through the power of God because of the Holy Spirit in your life. All of these things are not just meant to be, you know, your position in Christ as we talk about in theological categories, but they're also meant to be your experience in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. Now here's the big question. We have all of these promises in the scripture, but have you realized those promises? Do you experience the peace that surpasses understanding or is your life riddled with anxiety? Do you worry often about things? Like your finances, like the bills that are piling up, your children and their lives and their situations, your marriage, whatever it is. Could it be that someone is twisting your thoughts and perception in your mind that this Someone is causing you to doubt and disregard what Jesus has said is yours? Could it be that this same someone is also twisting the thoughts and perceptions of your children? I mean, is it really just this negative outlook that they're dealing with, this, this uh, destructive behavior or depression that's come about in their life? Is it really just a phase or should we be praying Ephesians 6 over them, knowing that Satan is just as much a malevolent force in their life as he is in our life? I mean, I can continue on and on with this. Is that, that spiritual victory that you know you should be having over that besetting sin in your life, is, is that just because you can't seem to overcome it? Or your, your struggle to get into the Scriptures and to study the Word daily and pray, and then when you go through a season like that, and then you start feeling like, I really shouldn't be reading the Bible because I'm no longer worthy because I haven't been reading the Bible? I want to suggest to you this morning that satanic agnosticism is, is affecting your spiritual walk with Christ. And I want to give you five reasons why I think we have allowed this to happen in our lives. The first reason has to do with the scriptures, right? It's ignorance or disbelief in the Bible. If you look at the Bible cover to cover, 
Satan is dealt with a lot in Scripture. You go into the Old Testament, seven books in the Old Testament make reference to Satan. In fact, if you look at the total Bible, he's referenced in the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, which is a bookend of the total Bible. If you look at the New Testament, Satan is referenced by every single New Testament writer. If you look at the Gospels, he's mentioned 29 times in the Gospel, and of those 29 times, 25 of those references are Christ. So how can we know of Satan unless we're knowing the Word of God? And will we take those references seriously unless we are convinced that this Scripture is God-breathed, infallible, that it, it, it gives me everything that I need pertaining to life and godliness. The second reason you'll see there on the screen is insulated lifestyles. I shared with you the story of Bijou, um, the reality that we don't always see spiritual warfare in the same way that people in other contexts do. And we've somewhat adopted a mentality that's like, see no evil, then there must be no evil. All the while, Satan's influence is operating as a clear and present danger in our culture. Uh, Sam Storms, he says this, the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan influences how we use our money what we watch on TV or online, how we raise our kids, which tone of voice we use to speak to our spouses, how we use our time, and how we talk about our bosses when they aren't indeed listening. He says it touches every aspect of our lives. Look at that third reason, compartmentalization. Here's what I mean by this. We compartmentalize spiritual warfare to the realm of tarot cards, Ouija boards, people in dark cloaks doing dark rituals in dark places, and of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But, 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 Satan loves that kind of compartmentalization. Because we think in our minds, well, I don't engage in those types of activities, therefore, it really doesn't impact my life. But the truth is, he's operating behind the curtain all the time in all domains of life. If we're not aware of it, of course, it impacts us. Look at the fourth one, the, the Western worldview. A German New Testament scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, famously said that if you can turn on an electric light, you most certainly could not believe in demons. His point is this. Living in the modern world of science and technology has forced many people to leave behind the pre-modern, pre-scientific, primitive beliefs that people held prior to the light bulb. Because, you know, we're so enlightened, right? So enlightened. I mean, we know all kinds of stuff. In fact... I want to suggest that we're not enlightened, okay? If you look at the last two years, I would suggest that we are living in the golden age of stupidity right now. And that attitude of, I'm so enlightened, it's smug, which is that fifth reason, right? The insidious power of pride. 
We're afraid of how people will think with us, of us if we adopt a worldview where we say we believe in demons and the devil and angels and invisible forces that are operating in the world. Well, here's the thing. The Bible said pride comes before the fall. If I'm constantly checking my worldview against the world and trying to live in a way that seems relevant to the world, I am going to water down the biblical worldview. There's just no other way around it. The biblical worldview is not the worldview that is operating in the world today. But now we've got to move from that topsy-turvy space, right? The world's worldview is like waves, right? James talks about faith and doubt, and he says if you engage in doubt, you'll be like waves being driven and tossed by the wind and the currents. Well, the same thing's true if you hold to the secular worldview of this world. We need to go to stabler places, God-breathed spaces. What does the Bible have to say about all of this? And I want us to see some facts, some high-level facts from the Bible. The first is this, that Satan is your true enemy. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, again, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now just think about the background for a moment of Ephesians. Do you think that these people are living in some kind of bubble or box? I mean, do you think that they didn't deal with marital issues, family struggles, employment concerns, governmental concerns? Of course they did. But that's not why Paul tells them to put on God's armor. No, he says to them that they are in a wrestling match. Now, as you envision this wrestling match, you need to think of a close hand-to-hand encounter. I think the the closest analogy of today that we could equate it to is UFC fighting, okay? That's how the Greeks wrestled. It was very extreme, last man standing. It required extreme exertion and concentration. Now, Paul, in this passage, he didn't view the main enemy as hard times, bad political policies, oppression, or the evil behavior of people. He said that the real enemy is who? The devil. Satan. And that's a good reminder, isn't it, during difficult times? Because let's just be honest for a minute. When you're going through tough times, when I'm going through tough times, I misidentify the enemy. I begin to believe that the enemy is my spouse or a child or a boss at work, or a policy, a political figure, coronavirus, or any other set of circumstances that we face. Now, these symptoms, they're easy to see, and I don't want to diminish them, okay? They, they are tough. They're difficult realities to face, but they are symptoms, not the source of the problem. We do not, Paul says, wrestle against these things. Those are flesh and blood things. He says, we wrestle against the dark and evil forces opposing God. 
Here's another crucial fact. Satan has allies. He's the lead antagonist of a Trinitarian enemy. Now, Paul identifies this enemy, this evil access of allies, if you will, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's the first member of the unholy alliance, right? Following the power, the prince of the power of the air. That's the leader. That's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the third. You could also call that the sinful nature. So you have Satan, the world, the flesh. Satan opposes you. The world seeks to distract you. The flesh wants to defile you. All of these are collaborating together with Satan at the helm in the battlefield of this conflict is none other than your soul. If you look at 1 John 5, 9, we see another biblical fact. We see that Satan has a global influence. John writes, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, John Stott unpacks a huge implication of this verse. He says, John wastes no words and blurs no issues. The uncompromising alternative is stated baldly. Everyone either belongs to us or the world. Everyone is either, therefore, of God or under the control of the evil one. There is no third category. You know what John means in that epistle? He means that everyone belongs to someone. Everyone belongs to someone. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you are His. You belong to God. But otherwise, everyone in this world is under the influence, the control, the authority of Satan. That's what Scripture's saying. And we see this in other places as we encounter the names of Satan in the Bible. For example, in one place, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And then as we saw in Ephesians 2.2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. Now, so here's the thing. You do not want to misconstrue what Scripture is saying when it gives us those names. Okay, Satan is not in control of the world, like ultimate control of the world. Someone else is, right? God. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. He's in control. But what we need to understand from these passages is that Satan rules over a sinful opposition, a system of sinful opposition to God. Let's look at one more fact. Satan has an ultimate purpose. If you're going to take any enemy seriously, you have to know what their desires are, what their ambition is, what their purpose is. Otherwise, in your spiritual battle, you will be playing checkers, and Satan will all the while be playing chess. And you do not want to play checkers while he's playing chess. 
So Satan's ultimate purpose is to oppose all things God. Satan hates God. He hates all of God's laws, his purposes, everything that God is about. Now, if you're going to look at God's ultimate purpose, the Bible makes it very clear. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself. That's what Scripture says. So all the works of God that you see in the Bible, salvation, redemption, God indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, God using us for his missional purposes, all of those things are not ultimately about us. They're about his glory. That's right. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. We begin our mission statement with worship because it's not all about me. It's bigger than me. And when I come to that realization, then I can enter into the space of transformation where I realize that my life is about the glory of God, and so then that shapes how I'm changed. I conform to the image of Jesus Christ. I go on mission. I do what God's called me to do. Now, here's the thing. Satan knows that your ultimate purpose and my ultimate purpose is to glorify God, and he opposes that because he opposes God. He doesn't want you to look like the one who perfectly glorified God with his life, Jesus. Remember what he said? He said, at all times, I do the will of my Father in heaven. Every second of Jesus's life was about glorifying God. So Satan does not want you to abide in Jesus Christ, as John 15 says. He doesn't want you to walk as Jesus walked, as 1 John 2, 6 says. He doesn't want you to be full of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 5, 18 says. No, Satan wants you to lead in irrelevant, ineffective, unspiritual, ungodly life. And ultimately, so that he can destroy you. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. In 1 Peter 5.8, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. You see what his purpose is for you? Well, if you want to stop playing checkers with Satan and start playing chess, you have to understand this big idea from the scriptures. You need to treat spiritual warfare as an ongoing daily reality. I'm going to say that again. Treat spiritual warfare as an ongoing daily reality. Let's apply it. Let's look at four ways we can apply that. First, we have to know the enemy and his methods. The implications of 2 Corinthians 2.11 is that you will not be outwitted by Satan if you are not ignorant of his designs. Like I said at the beginning, I don't like talking about Satan. I don't like publicizing him. But I'd be doing you a disservice if we didn't look at this in the Scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about it. Because, like it or not, we're in war. So we have to know his methods. We have to know his character. We have to know what he was like. Uh, it makes me think of that World War II movie, Patton. There is a scene in the movie where Patton's intelligence service has intercepted 
uh, German radio transmission, and it's bearing the news of an impending attack that is being led by Germany's most decorated military leader, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. Now, on the morning of the battle, Patton is awakened by his aides, and a book lies open in his nightstand. The title of the book is The Tank, an Attack by Rommel. As the battle is joined, the Allies successfully assault the enemy, and Patton, staring through binoculars, is looking at the carnage of the battlefield, and he shouts out, Rommel, you magnificent... And if you know the movie, you know I'm not going to quote the next quote. I read your book. I read your book. We need to do the same thing. We need to read the playbook of the enemy. If we understand his playbook, then of course we can live the spiritual life that Jesus has called us to live. Look at the second application. Avoid two extremes. Now, Lewis, at the beginning of the screw tape letters, said this, that we're often guilty of two equal and opposite errors. One is to believe or to disbelieve in the existence of Satan. The other is an excessive, unhealthy obsession with him. With either, he is delighted. So he likes you to think with satanic agnosticism, which that is the disbelief or to under. Uh, undervalue who he is. The second is satanic dualism, which is to believe that Satan and God are in this cosmic battle, and we're not quite sure who's going to win. Let me just make this really clear. They are not equal with one another. God is far superior to Satan. The Bible has already told us that God's predetermined his destiny, and he's going to be ultimately victorious. So here's the thing. As you go about the spiritual battle, one, don't fall into the trap of believing that there's a devil or demon behind every rock. But two, recognize that Satan is smarter than you, stronger than you, and he does know what he wants to do with your life. Let's look at a third application. Actively engage your mind in this spiritual battle. Listen to the verbs of spiritual warfare. Be sober. Be serious. Be vigilant. Resist. Be alert. Those are all verbs of the mind. Satan wants the space between your ears. He knows that if he gets access to your mind that he has the kill shot. We were talking about this in staff meeting, and Pastor James noted that many of the world religions tell us that we are to clear our mind, to devoid our mind of all thought, to engage in thoughtlessness. You know what? The Bible never tells you to do that. Never. If anything, the Bible tells you guard it, cultivate it, and allow it to be renewed by the Word of God. The Bible in Christianity is very much about the mind because we know that your mind is like a sponge. And if you're just operating in life mindlessly, it is just picking things up. It's like dropping a sponge in dirt and letting it absorb all of the grime of the ground. You don't have to do that with your mind. You can keep watch over it. 
You can be active with it. Fourth, pray for spiritual eyes to see. Remember, we just looked at Elijah. The next part of the story, of course, is the successor, Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Aram is personally seeking to kill Elisha. He comes and sets a massive amount of troops outside of the city of Dotham. Elisha's servant wakes up, he goes outside, and he sees tens of thousands of horses and chariots, and they're all stationed outside of there with the idea of killing the one prophet, Elisha. And that's because his prophetic intelligence has just been too good lately. Every time the king of Aram seeks to do something against northern Israel, Elisha tips them off. Well, the servant runs back inside, and as you can imagine, he's quite terrified. Elisha's sleeping. He wakes him up. Elisha goes outside. He assesses the situation. Then he comes back, and he's just totally unconcerned. He says this, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, if I'm that servant, I'm thinking in that moment, what are you talking about right now? Are you crazy? You're declaring an early victory, and we have all these forces outside. How are we ever going to get away from this situation? So then Elisha prays this very simple prayer. He says, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. You know, I love that. Sometimes we complicate prayer. Often when I look at prayers in the Bible that, where God showed up dramatically, they're, they're not these long, elaborate, eloquent discourses of prayer. It's like one sentence, Lord, open his eyes. Lord, bring the fire down right now. That's all you need to do. God knows what you need before you're asked. He's just waiting for you to pray. And what does God do? He opens the eyes of the servant. The servant looks out and he sees on the mountainside chariots and armies of fire. Heaven's army laying just behind the curtain of the physical realm all the while has been present and ready to do battle. You know what he's praying ultimately? He's praying for a perspective change. If you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, you need to have a perspective change. 1 John 4.4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the perspective change. If you have trusted Christ, you too have the unlimited power of God totally available to you. Do you know that? Do you experience that? Do you operate out of that? It makes me think of an analogy I heard just this past week. I was speaking with someone, and as we were talking, they shared this analogy. Imagine for a moment that you have a car, and it's broken down at the side of the road because you've run out of gas. And so you know there's a gas station some two miles up the road. You get outside of your car and you start pushing that bad boy, thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to get it there. I've got enough strength and power. I'm going to exert myself. All the while, as you're doing this, looking like a fool, 
a good Samaritan drives along and they see you in this struggle, in this exertion. And they say, look, you don't have to do that. I'll hook up the car to my car. I'll tow you to the gas station. You get towed to the gas station, and when you arrive there, you realize that your bad day has gotten worse because you're reaching in your back pocket for your wallet, and it is not there. You have no money, no way of paying for gas to get in the tank. Now, I've actually done that before, and that's not fun. So the person yet again says, okay, I want to help you along your way. I'll fill up your tank with gas. They fill it up. They give you that source of power, that source of movement, that source of vitality, all the way to the brim, all the way to the full. Now, just imagine how incredulous it would seem to them if after they've done all of this for you, if you got back behind the car and started pushing it along and they say, why are you doing that right now? Well, I just want to get it down the road a little further before I start using some of this gas up. They would think that you're crazy. Here's the thing. Many of us operate the same way in the spiritual life. We have the life, the, in, the, the, the vitality, the energy of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. We can operate through His power. And all the while, we're standing behind the car, trying to push the thing along, trying to do you know, the religion thing, and going nowhere. And wondering why is the spiritual life such an exertion? You know in spiritual battle, Scripture says in Ephesians 6, be strong, not in yourself, not in your wealth, not in your knowledge, not in your social network. What does it say? Be strong in the Lord. Let Him do battle for you. Go in His strength. Friends, that's the perspective shift we all need. If we're going to do anything of value in this battle, we need to battle in His strength. Father, as we think about what we've learned this morning, we come to the realization that we do have an enemy and we need to know this enemy. I pray against the schemes of the devil. Lord, I know that the devil has plans for the people of this church. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan for this Cape region where we are doing ministry, Lord. And all of those plans stand opposed to your plans. I pray against satanic agnosticism. I pray, Lord, that we would operate from the biblical worldview and take it seriously and believe that all of these things are going on all around us and it's an ongoing daily reality. And then in that recognition that we would operate out of the Spirit of God. Help us to do this, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.